Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Dell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sensat. What's going on, man? I'm doing great because we just recorded my favorite podcast thus far. Absolutely. It makes this intro very easy. Uh, we just interviewed Ilya Espino de Marota. She is the deputy administrator of the Panama Canal. Uh, this was really a really interesting talk. You got to lead the whole talk because she's, she's an Aggie which I know you always enjoy, but, you know, hearing from her perspective of her or her career at the canal, uh, the challenges just as a woman she's faced, even some of the sustainability initiatives that the canal is really going through. I thought it was a jam-packed, very cool, totally different guest uh, than we've had. What'd you think? Yeah, I, I really like um, the fact that we were able to have her on because she is by far the most unique guest we've had. Um, just about every guest we've had has um, been centered around building construction, um, whether they're an architect, engineer, or a contractor. And we got to do something a little bit different. Um, you know, the Panama Canal is probably the most famous canal in the whole world. And, you know, she is one of the major players there. Um, so, you know, it, it's going to be a unique episode. Um, I think people are going to learn a lot from it. Um, and, you know, it was just, it was so cool to have Ilya on. And I know I learned a lot and I'm sure you did as well. Oh yeah. I learned a ton. And, uh, isn't she a Forbes member on the cover of Forbes? Uh, she was on the cover of Forbes Central America, um, and she was listed as was as one of the continent's fifty most powerful women. It's a big time guest there. Yep. So she's a big deal. No, it was it was a great episode. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you get to listen to it, enjoy, and check back for more. Thanks. Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors. Um, I'm here with Christopher Riddell, the host. I get to open this episode, so it's very special. Um, it's also very special because we are here with the Deputy Administrator of the Panama Canal, Ilya Espino de Marota. Um, so how are you doing, Ilya? Hi, good morning. I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Awesome. So... Um, I came across your work um, because, um, you know, you're a fellow Aggie and the Association of Former Students did a great article on you. And, you know, pretty much from the moment I read it, I was like, OK, we we need to get her on the podcast. And um, I'm really happy we did. Um, so when we have our guests on, we kind of have them walk through, you know, their career path and what got you to this point. Um, so could you touch on, you know, what got you interested in working, you know, near the, the ocean um, and what's brought you to this point with the Panama Canal? Sure. It'd be my pleasure. Well, I, I fell in love with the ocean when I was at the age of 15 and I was a big fan of Jacques Cousteau. Uh, I started scuba diving when I was 16 and I really wanted to be like a scientist, research, Smithsonian type person. So when I graduated from high school, I got a scholarship, a Fulbright scholarship to go to school in the States for marine biology. And after a year and a half, I came to Panama to see the potential jobs I could get. And really it wasn't at all what I had envisioned. Panama at the time was not big in research, marine or anything like that. So 
I would have to work like on a shrimp farm uh, out in the country. And that was not my idea. So, so then I, I left the scholarship and I said, well, I need to be near the ocean because that's what I wanted to do for life. So I envisioned oceanography. That's how I got to Texas A&M. So I did oceanography for a semester. Again, a lot of research, not possibilities in Panama. So I figured, well, uh, ships are in the water so I can work on ships, either designing or maintenance. <laughs> so that's how I ended up in marine engineering. And actually it was, it's been a wonderful career. My first job when I graduated was in the Panama Canal shipyard where we do maintenance to all of our floating equipment, dredges, tugboats, launches. Um, so I, I worked in the shipyard for like about four and a half years. And then the canal is 10,000 people and we, we have all kinds of different jobs. So it's pretty, it's relatively easy to apply to different jobs and move around. So then after four and a half years, I went to work in dredging division again on the water, uh, engineering work. And then I moved to another engineering office, which is, it was more of a mechanical work, you know, air conditioning systems, fuel systems, uh, locomotives, all that stuff. And I got a master's degree in engineering economics. Meanwhile, then I went to work as a valuation engineer in accounting, which was a great job. I was the only technical engineer in, in accounting division, and I was in charge of uh, classifying assets for the canal to see what was an investment program and what was a maintenance operation expenses. And after that, then I went to work in operations and I was in operations for, I would say about four years. And in 2002, I got a phone call from the deputy administrator at the time, asking me if I was interested in working at the Panama Canal master plan, which was the investment program looking 25 years ahead. And part of it was uh, analyzing the Panama Canal expansion program. And that was fantastic. So I moved to that project in 2002. Um, once it was approved by a national referendum, we started execution in 2007 and I was the manager of a specific area which, which was controls, safety, environment, historical documentation. And then in 2012, I was uh, chosen to be vice president of engineering and lead the project into conclusion which finalized in 2016. Um, after that, in 2019, I was moved into vice president of operations. So it was pretty cool being in charge of building the project and then being responsible for running the, the operations. And in 2020, then I was uh, selected by the board directors as a deputy administrator. And right now I got two hats. I'm a deputy, administ a deputy administrator and also the VP of operations. So, so it's been a 35 long year career. <laughs> very fun. Jack Jackson will always take an opportunity to talk to another Aggie. Like he makes it his point to get as many Texas A&M people on the podcast. So <laughs> yeah, I'm apparently I'm not very good at it because I've only had two at this point. <laughs> and you are number two. <laughs> well, we're a bunch all over the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and since Chris brought it up, um, could you talk to me about your experience, both, both at Texas A&M? I know you took some classes at the main campus as well as in Galveston. I actually grew up in that area and, um, have a lot of friends that went to A&M Galveston and they, they loved it. So could you talk to me about your experience there? Of course, it was great. Um, I went to college station for a semester and of course a couple of summers 
And it's a completely different feel, one campus from the other, and they're both great in their own way. But when we get to, when I got to Galveston, um, I even got a job, I, I was a resident advisor in Galveston, and it was so tiny, you knew everybody on the campus. Uh, it was so casual, um, tiny. I think it was 10 guys to a girl, that, the ratio at the time. And I went recently, after like 30 years and I didn't recognize the campus has so many new buildings. Uh, before to get something to eat, you had to go across the drawbridge. I had a bicycle to get, you know, whatever. There was no life in the island except for, for the campus. Now there's even like private apartments and stores. So it was great. But the, the beauty about Galveston it was just very small classes. We were only two girls in the faculty. Uh, one girl, she was a, a cadet, and I was not. I didn't not. I did not take the license option, but uh, it was fantastic. I learned a lot, and then it was kind of fun going to do my summer classes in in College Station because it was more lively. <laughs> but um, different feelings, but wonderful. And uh, I also, uh, my roommate worked in the cafeteria, so you know, it was it was nice. It was uh, it was a very uh, enjoyable time, both both places. That's good. I, I too look back with fond memories um, from my time there. I, that's actually where I met my wife. Um, oh, wow. So it was actually at Northgate, if you ever um, spend any time there while you were in College Station. Um, so in the article, one of the things that just astounded me was when you first started doing work at, on the Panama Canal, you lived on the um, Atlantic side of Panama. The other way. I lived in was, the Pacific. the other way. Okay. I lived lived in the Pacific and worked in the Atlantic. Yep. Okay. And you would have to drive two hours across country every morning, and you'd get there at seven. So you were you were getting up, um, as I like to say, before God wakes up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how long did that last, and um, what was that like? And also. Um, I, I assume the canal must span across the country. Um, so were you driving along the canal? Yes, um, definitely along the canal, not along the waterway itself. In some areas, yes, you see the waterway in some areas, no, through the mountains. Back in 1985, when I started my job, um, it was a two lane road, one lane going, one lane coming. And you, in the Atlantic side, you have the free zone, canal, the, 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 the trade zone is a free zone. So there's a lot of containers traffic. There was nothing to stop by and eat on the way to the Atlantic side. So um, that's when I learned to drink coffee because I was never a coffee drinker, but I wasn't going to get up too early in the morning to make breakfast. And when I got to my job, there was nothing to eat either. So people would make a pot of coffee and that's when I started drinking coffee. Um, and I develop a taste for it only Monday through Friday. I don't drink coffees on the weekends. So it was uh, first at the beginning, we used to have the across the Isthmus train. So I would take the train, which was really nice because I could sleep, bring a pillow, sleep on the way to work in the morning and then read in the afternoon. Train stopped working about six months after I started my job. So I, I ended up driving. And then after a while, I started doing some carpooling. I did try to live in the Atlantic side. I moved into an uncle's house, uh, but really what well, there wasn't a lot to do in the area. So I tried it all. I tried the train, it stopped. I tried living there, I couldn't take it. Um, I drove it myself and then I did carpool. So you, you know, 
at Make the time, it, it was like, not a big deal. Now, when I think back, it's like, oh, my God, I did that for four and a half years. <laughs> so then my second job was in the middle of the, of the canal, Gamboa, dredging division, which is kind of midpoint between the Atlantic and the Pacific. So that was a, a, a lot shorter drive and a lot less traffic because it's like a dead end area where there's no, no through traffic. And then eventually I made it to, to the Pacific side where I lived and I worked. So you've kind of been able to work on different aspects of the canal all the way up to this position now, have you not? Yes, it's been great um, because I've seen a lot of the areas of the canal. Uh, first, all that was um, floating equipment repair, then all of the dredging equipment. And, and in different stages, I did different things. Like in the shipyard, I did a lot of design. I did cost estimating. I did... Um, not so much specs because we would design in the office and you just walk out in the shops and you see how they're fabricating everything. So it's more of like bill of materials and design of what needed to be done. When I went to dredging, it was more specs for purchases of equipment or design for projects, dredging projects that we actually had to execute. We, we at the time we had four dredges. Um, then when I went to the main engineering office, it was, Specs, writing for contracts, cost estimating, and design. So, it, you know, it, I was all over the place. And then when I went to see the, to work at the accounting division, then I saw the whole company investments across. I mean, we, we have water, uh, portable water plants. We have two of them, three now, two at the time. We have a power generating plan. We have hydro generating plans. Of course, you know, all of regular, uh, everything else that goes with an operation of this magnitude, everything that had to do with the locks. So I, I kept learning a lot of the company in different areas. And then when I got to the expansion program, that was like a complete new, new ball game for me. How do you strategize for, you know, 25 years ahead? And we had to do a lot of studies of water and engineering and economics and marketing. So throughout my career, it's, it's been pretty cool to be able to experience different areas in the company. And that's only if you like it. Some people like, like, this is what I like and this is all I want to do. To me, it was always pretty cool to have like a, a new challenge and learn a new area. So I, I made it a point to apply to a lot of jobs to try to move around. Would you say that helped you now that you're on the operations side, being able to kind of see all those different pieces? Oh, absolutely. First, you create an immense network within the company because you work in so many different areas. Second, it's, it makes your life a lot easier when you come to decision-making because you have come from the bottom and you have experienced different areas. So I think um, absolutely it just makes your life easier because you understand maintenance, you understand operations, uh, you understand the finances. So having moved around, rounds you up for, for a better management position, definitely. So um, a part of the article was, um, you know, in 2007, that's when the expansion um, started and um, you got a leading role in the expansion. And within the article, you know, it talks about how you're one of few women on the job site and when you were you know starting to be brought up to have a leading role um 
in this big expansion project, um, people were bringing up these different names and they were all men. And then it sounded like that was the birth of the pink hard hat and the pink vest, which it sounds like you are famous worldwide for. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when my boss got promoted to administrator, he, he proposed me uh, to take on, on his job, you know, lead the expansion program. And I was ratified by the board directors. Um, they, they inquire, why not this man? Why this woman is the one you're proposing, you know? And, and of course he had to defend his position and I was ratified. Uh, but I, I learned that there was some skepticism. Can she do the job because it's a she? And that's when I, I've never experienced that in my life before in that sense. Because when I went to, to college, we were two girls in the faculty and, and it was a non-issue. When, when you work in the, let's say, professional technical area, everybody produces technical work. So your gender is less of an issue until you start getting into management. That's when there's a little bit of question like, hmm, can she do it? Um, and I, I never really knew that existed until that year. I, I, I never felt it because always I got promoted from, by a man. I always replace a man. And I just thought, you know, women don't like this. So that's why there's no women in here. But there's a lot of women that have a fear that, oh, it's a man's world. So I don't want to experiment. To me, engineering was never a man's world. So to me, it was like not a big deal. And I never saw that until that year. And that's when I said, hey, I need to make a statement that I'm a woman. For the first time, I felt that I had to. So my husband said, um, why don't you get a pink hard hat? That's a great idea. So I went into the web and sure enough, they not only had pink hard hats, but pink vests. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll just buy both. Um, and actually, I think the shipping cost me more than the hat and the vest together. <laughs> so I came back to Panama. With, I bought it in the States. I was in the States at the time. I bought it and, and I said, well, how do I... How do I wear a pink hard hat? You know, Panama Canal has like color codes and supervisors wear white. So I gave it to, to the people in the shop to put the label and the logo of the Panama Canal. And then they put two white butterflies on it. And I thought, ooh, that's, that's a little bit too girly. So, <laughs> but I didn't want to, you know, discourage these guys. They took the time to carve two white butterflies. So I put them underneath the, the helmet so, you, so it's not visible. So I went to the project with my boss and I said, can you believe these guys made white butterflies for my pink hard hat? And he was speechless. I mean, what is he going to say? So from that day on, I just worked my pink hard hat. And it was just to make that statement that, that women can do this job. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. I, I did want to touch on, so, you know, Chris and I, we mainly talk to people who do building construction. 
and we both come from the building construction realm. I grew up near the ocean, but I consider the ocean to be very scary. <laughs> you know, I also consider it to be unpredictable. Now, I love, you know, swimming in the ocean and things like that. But when I think of the challenges that we faced in the building construction industry on land, where it's a little more predictable, and I think about the ocean with tides, weather events, and just the immense power the ocean has, what is it like to like do engineering um, with a focus on you know the ocean itself? Well, boats, I mean, they float. So you, I don't know, it's just different. You don't need to have a, a stable foundation to be fixing one place. Um, it's more the, the power, the engines, the, you know, people living in these quarters, the distances you got to go. So it's, it's quite different. And when we build the new locks, um, seismic criteria was very important and water pressures were very important because we, you know, basically you have a, a, a boat or a vessel or a ship that it's on sea level. And in the Panama Canal, we elevated um, 87 feet above sea level. You go through an artificial lake on top of the mountains and then he comes down. So water pressure is quite important. Water is pretty amazing. Canal is basically a water elevator. So uh, water pressures are very important. We have uh, on the Pacific side, there's an 18 foot tidal range. In the Atlantic side, it's about two feet tidal range. So when you think of engineering, uh, the structures, you gotta, you gotta contemplate that. The, the water pressures you're gonna have, the tidal ranges you're gonna have. And the other thing that uh, it's quite important for us in the maritime sector is the water, because you go from fresh water to salt water and the other way around. So you also, for materials, is quite interesting. Uh, the concrete mix you're gonna use, the type of coating you're gonna use on your equipment that's moving from fresh water to salt water, the type of maintenance. So it's, it's a very diverse um, field that you gotta think a lot of different aspects because you, you know, it's not just land, it's land and water. So it's, it's quite interesting. So um, yeah, that, that's something I've always wondered because you know, there was a time where I wanted to go to A&M Galveston and do something similar. And you know, with just the way the ocean is, it, I, I've always wondered like, what is it like to do something like that and basically control the ocean and build these, you know, incredibly strong, you know, structures that can withhold it. Um, so I had to brush up on my history, but I read that, you know, back in 79, Jimmy Carter um, basically signed a bill saying that come 2000, Panama was going to have full ownership of the Panama Canal. Um, how, how big of an impact does the canal have on Panama's economy? Oh, it's, it's huge. Um, when the Americans built the canal, there was a for life treaty that said that the canal would own the strip of land and the canal. And I think they paid like rent. Uh, I don't have the number in my head right now, but I, in the 
a hundred years basically that the the canal was under U.S. Uh, ownership, the impact, the economic impact to the to Panama as a country was nil, because you also had the military bases with a lot of land. So it wasn't just the canal; it was all the different military bases, you know. So when the treaties were signed, um, and they we have a, a twenty-year transition period when when the the transfer was going to occur. Then a lot of the labor, because um, it was it was mainly U.S. citizens that worked in the canal at the time. So we started a transition program, and a lot of Panamanian professionals like myself were hired to uh, take on roles when the Americans would would go away. Um, so I enter as a what what they call a career intern. I started as a engineering technician, NM5 with a target of NM11, I think it was. And that was like a three-year developmental program to have Panamanian professionals. So the workforce increased significantly in Panamanians. I don't think there were many Panamanians that had managerial roles. So in those 20 years, we started uh, moving up. And when the canal was, and it was a break-even operation for the US government, the Panama Canal compared to the US government uh, it's it, income wise is not relevant. I mean, it was a drop in the bucket. So we had a break even policy. We weren't here to make money uh, and whatever Congress appropriated as a budget, you had to spend it in order to get the same or more for next year. Because if you under underspend it, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't get appropriated funds for the next year. So when the Panama Canal was transferred to Panama, the vision was, this is a business that we need to make money to give to the government to help the country's finances. And that's our goal. So we are, uh, every revenue goes to the country. And we have given, I think, about $18 billion uh, in the 20 years of the transfer. Of course, it has increased significantly because of the expansion. But you can see the difference that under the US, the Panama Canal was irrelevant for the Panama economy as a country, and also the ports were managed by the US. We, the ports were not Panamanians. So after the treaties, the ports became Panamanian. So now we have um, five different ports, in the, two in the Pacific and uh, three in the Atlantic that generated a lot of income for job generation and incomes for the country and development of the private industry of the port industry in Panama. So it's, it's been significant. You mentioned, um, it's switch gears a little bit. You mentioned that when you kind of went to the operations side, you're looking more at master planning as part of like the expansion. I'm curious a little bit as to how does, you know, when we look at you know, several months ago, what happened in the Suez Canal where it kind of got blocked. Do you all look at things like that as, you know, to help you plan now of what possible things you may need to avoid in the future or how do events like that impact the current master planning at the Panama Canal. Yeah, we safety is is key for us. Differences from the Panama Canal and Swiss. We are eighty kilometers long. There, I think two hundred and eighty kilometers long. So it's it's a, a, a longer stretch. We are uh, they are a sea level canal. We are a lock canal. So and our pilots actually take control of the vessels. In Swiss, the pilot is an advisor to the ship's captain. Here, so now we have a workforce of about about 272 pilots, and we put about 13,000 ships per year. So these 272 people are constantly transiting vessels through our canal. So they're very familiar with the canal. 
We have a dredging division that makes sure that the navigational waters are kept clear of any problems. We do a, constantly doing surveys. And we do have a very narrow stretch, it's called uh, Gaylar Cut or Culebra Cut, where we have one-way transit for the biggest vessels. We also have complete illumination throughout the canal. It's, it's very well lit up. Um, and we do have restrictions on which vessels can meet which other vessels in the narrow strip. It's one-way traffic. We also operate in a convoy fashion. So you have all ships going north, meaning from the Pacific to the Atlantic in the mornings, and going south, Atlantic to Pacific in the afternoon, and they cross each other in the widest part of the lake. So um, when we have a thick fog, which is certain months of the year, we do not put ships through because even with all the technology that we have, uh, it's kind of risky. So to prevent, you know, it's a risk mitigation to prevent from a ship going on the side because the banks are right there then we do not put ships when there's heavy, heavy fog. And when it races, then we, we put them through. So there's a lot of mechanisms that we have. We also have escort togs for certain vessels. If they are like what we would call dangerous cargo, you have a tugboat along uh, the ship, accompanying the ship through the Gaylord Cut. So yeah, we, we have a lot of different mitigations for. And we also, before we used to have some slides in Gaylord Cut. So we have all kinds of, uh, devices that measure any land movement. And now you can prevent, I think our big biggest slide was 1985, I believe, or 87. Uh, ever since then, now you can prevent. And before there's a slide, you go and you know, remove the soil to prevent the slide. And then the dredges come to pick up whatever. But um, yeah. In that same vein, um, you know, over in the, the building construction side, we have issues with, you know, we have so many stakeholders, um, the architects, engineers, people within construction and all of the branches that come from that. And we have issues with people not being on the same page that results in schedule delays, maybe increased costs, you know, decreased profit, things like that. Um, so it, it's a big deal when people aren't on the same page in building construction. But I imagine in the Panama Canal, if y'all aren't operating as one unit, um, you know, things can go wrong, you know, probably pretty quickly. So what is the process like, you know, for a ship that's going to be coming through the canal to, you know, when it gets to the other side, what does that look like from beginning to end, like first contact to getting through? Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a pretty big, complicated matrix, but because you do it every day, it seems seamless, but there's tons of coordination. First, you need to know, um, because we have restrictions of sizes and some vessels can transit only in daylight, some at nighttime, some require two talks to transit, some require one talk to transit. So all these needs to be uh, planned ahead. And we have the schedulers that program who's gonna go when. We also have, Reservations. So some ships buy a special ticket to guarantee a transit on a certain date and some not. They're like first come, first serve. So you need to understand what type of vessel is coming and the qualification of the pilots, because the pilots that passes ships through the Neo Panamax locks need a higher qualification than the ones that pass through the Panamax locks. Also, in the Panamax locks, we use locomotives. In the Neo Panamax, we use tugboats. So you need to understand 
how to assign the different tugboats that assist ships into the Panamax and the ones that go into the chambers with the vessel on the Neo Panamax. We have what we call the transit vessel inspectors that depending on a risk matrix, they might have to go inspect a specific ship before transit initiates. We also have the boarding officer who goes and makes sure that everything on the vessel is according to the requirements so they can give the green light to, okay, he can get going. Then we have the launches that take, we have the cars that take the pilots from the pilot reporting station to the launch reporting station so then they can board the ship. And once the pilot is on board and is approaching any of the locks, then we have, again, the launches that take the line handlers that go on top of the vessel to handle the lines to either the locomotives or the tugboats or the side chambers. So all this is being coordinated by a, a control center who calls in when we need the tug crews when, and, and also the tugboats. The tug crew, the captain, the engineer, the seaman and the oiler need to go on board the, the, the vessel to assist. So you need to coordinate all these things. And then you have the locks people, the ones, the lock master that is waiting for the vessel to open and close valves and gates to move through the three different levels because each level is nine meters. Um, then you go through the Gaylar cut, you go through the lake and then the same operation in the Atlantic side. So there's a lot of moving parts. And we also have a system which is called the PPU, which is a, a small iPad that the pilot has with him and it's connected to the vessel through some antennas that give him a very accurate positioning uh, centimeters uh, within the chamber so they understand. And then of course you have the huge maintenance uh, of the locks that need to be programmed. And in the Panamax locks, we have two lanes. So you can have one out for maintenance and the other one operating. In the Neo Panamax, you only have one lane. So we designed it that you never have to take it out of service for maintenance. Things that we did differently, uh, we don't have locomotives. So you only use tugboats. We have the filling and emptying system of the water flow through the sidewalls instead of the bottom. We have rolling gates that you can do maintenance in its own access uh, recess area. In the Panamax locks, there are miter gates that you need to actually float and take to a shipyard for maintenance. So all these things were taken into account so you never have to close the Neo Panamax lanes for maintenance. You can do it while you're operating. What's kind of the average time it takes for like an average ship to get through through that whole process? If you are uh, a reserve vessel under 18 hours and the actual transit time, it's about eight to 10 hours and the 18 hours would be with the waiting time. If you are uh, a non-booked vessel, it could take 24, 36 hours, depends on the queue. We have vessels waiting to cross. Sometimes the queue is 120 vessels, sometimes it's 60 vessels. Okay. So we, we try to analyze waiting time uh, versus waiting days. If you have somebody waiting more than four or five days to come across, that's not very good. But we have gotten up to 12 days sometimes when we have a long queue. Right after the pandemic, we had long queues, but now we're, we're kind of back to balance. That's logistics. <laughs> Big time logistics, <laughs> yes. And rainfall is key because the canal operates on rainfall. So we also have a meteorology office that is always looking at rainfall so we can have the right lake level 
because we can only hold a certain elevation. After that, then we'll have to spill water if we don't have enough storage capacity. And if we see rainfall, it's going to be a very dry summer. Then we need to find ways of uh, preserved water, which we, we have in the new locks. We have the water saving basins that you can reutilize 60% of the water. And in the traditional locks, we devised or created a way of saving water too by moving water from one chamber to the adjacent chamber. So you re reutilize the water. It slows down the traffic a little bit, but then you can preserve water in the dry season. Is that kind of the big, would you say the water conservation is like the big sustainability initiative that the Panama Canal kind of focuses on? Absolutely. We're, we're starting a program on, because there is a, I don't know, I don't want to call it climate change, but there is a change in the climate pattern that now we are having uh, longer and more frequent dry spells uh, that can impact the draft that we offer the vessels. And if we you don't offer a competitive draft, then they can use a different route. So right now uh, we're in the process of starting a about $2 billion investment program on uh, water storage and water uh, increase. But yeah, I, I would say that's our, our focus right now in the canal are two, three very important areas. Um, water conservation and increase. Uh, reducing CO2 emissions. So we're going to be purchasing relatively soon uh, some hybrid tugs, new technology for us, but we're looking at that. And also try to consolidate certain areas. How has, and maybe this is an obvious question, but you know, with, what, with climate change and how we've seen stronger hurricanes and stronger storms, is that having a direct impact on the canal of yet, or is that something you guys are kind of keeping an eye on of how that may impact you? We, we do keep an eye on it. In 2010, we had huge rains. We, every, every time when the thick of rainy season is, we have flood control exercises. Uh, so people don't get inundated and we can, we can spill enough if we need to and generate. Um, but in 2010, we had a super strong rain big storms and we actually stopped the canal for about eight or 10 hours because the currents were so strong that we actually had to stop. Uh, but it's more frequent having droughts than having these uh, strong uh, water uh, spouts that will paralyze the canal, let's say. So a drought is actually worse for you all then yes. because it lowers everything? Yes, because water you can always spill. We have two spillways, one in the Pacific side, one in the Atlantic. Uh, so if you have extra water and you don't have storage capacity, you can generate power and you can spill, uh, ideally would be to store all that water. So that's why in the, in the new water project, we're looking at increasing storage capacity, which we increased with the expansion program by, um, I think it was a foot and a half. We went from elevation, two feet from elevation 87, which is the standard lake elevation to elevation 89. So that lets us store uh, more capacity of water for dry season and to also provide an adequate draft for the vessels. So is the water also being used to generate energy for the canal or is? Yes. Yeah. The, the water from the lake, about 55% of the population of Panama takes uh, raw water to make into potable water. So it's, it's a, let's say a two purpose lake ships and potable water. Very cool. Yeah. 
I've always heard, yeah, and then the hydroelectric power too, I've always heard is very efficient. I think in Costa Rica, um, they're doing something as well with, um, they're harnessing the energy from their volcanoes. I'm blanking cool. on the name for that. Maybe geothermal. Yeah, geothermal Probably. sounds right. There it is. Yeah. All right. Um, Ilya, um, thank you so much again for joining us on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, the last thing we have, um, or the last thing we have to ask you is, um, you know, what's, what's next for the canal, um, you know, over these next 10, 20 years? Well, I don't know if we'll build a fourth set of lots, but the land was left in case we need it. If there's enough demand in the market and, and if we can secure enough water right now, we wouldn't have enough water to make a fourth set of lots. But we're looking at um, being carbon neutral, definitely. Uh, that's one of our goals. We're looking at digital transformation to improve some of our processes and uh, be more efficient. We're looking at, well, storage of more water. Absolutely, that, that's necessary. So those are like our main goals. Remain a highly competitive in the world. Have Panama as a you know, one of the main routes for transshipment of, of commerce and cargo. Something that's very interesting is that when we analyzed the project, the third set of locks, we thought the biggest container vessel would carry 12,000 containers on board. And up to now, we have put vessels that carry up to 15,000 containers. So we need to reinvent ourselves on how to let the existing infrastructure increase. And now we're analyzing, and this is still something very interesting. We're analyzing, um, MERSC has approached us to try to put a vessel that is wider than we allowed uh, through the locks that can carry more than 16,000 containers. But the, the, the reason we, we can't do it right now is because the thickness of the fenders in the new locks would not allow this vessel with these beams. So now we're analyzing what material of fendering with the thin enough can we use that still protects the logs, the vessel, and can allow bigger vessels to go through. So that's something that would allow us to capture bigger ships than we had anticipated, which will bring more cargo, which brings more revenue. So it's a quite interesting engineering project. And there's got to be some technology out there with some super nice material that we can use on fenders. Because another difference is in the new logs, we have fendering systems inside the chambers that reduce the usable space in the Panamax locks, we don't need fenders because you have locomotives that basically position the vessel within the chamber. So fenders are not required. So those kind of things, you know, uh, to improve uh, with technology and to make the canal more efficient. It's very cool. Wow. That, that was awesome. <laughs> so Elliot, thank you again for joining us. It, we're you know really happy to have had you um on the show and uh you know we look forward to seeing um the new things that come out of the panama canal great thank you it was my pleasure thank you for inviting thank you me so, so much this was great thanks for listening to the aec disruptors podcast enjoy this episode leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and co-workers i'd love to hear from you send me a linkedin request or follow our linkedin page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for listening. 
the AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniels, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2021.